Do you remember the fairy tale Rapunzel? Do you remember the fairy tale Rapunzel? Rapunzel was taken by a witch and put in a tower. And the only way to get to the tower was through her long hair. She had a one-room apartment, but you can only access it through her hair. She would drop her hair down, and it would be uh, weaved or braided, and, and that's how you got to Rapunzel. And the witch kept her away from the world. But a prince came by one day, and he saw what happened. And he was just overtaken by her beauty. And he wanted to, to climb the ladder and to know her, to get to able to talk to her, to develop a relationship with her. And so she, he said, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair that I might climb the golden stair. Well, in the same way, Satan... Our world, maybe even our flesh, tries to lock away Christ in a high tower for us. But unfortunately, most men, and when I say men, I mean men and women. I'm talking about mankind in general. I'm talking about Christians. Most Christians are satisfied to just look at Christ in the tower and never yell for the ladder to come down. Never to press in. In fact... It seems like we're happy that we're saved, but modern Christianity is not filled with passion. You don't see people hungry for Jesus. You don't see people thirsty for Jesus. The problems with us is what A.W. Tozer said. He said, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be, check this out, no manifestation of Christ to his people. And then he says this, Jesus, he waits to be wanted. You see, the prince was not content to just view Rapunzel from the ground. And we can't be content to view our true love Christ from an open window upstairs. I tell you what, only, only Christ can satisfy the longing of the heart. We have tried to fill it with boats. We've tried to fill it with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We've tried to fill it with food. We've tried to fill it with cars. We've tried to fill it with stuff. We've tried to even fill it with good things such as our family, because our families are good. But we even try to, to satisfy the deepest longing of our heart with even our kids. And it just doesn't satisfy. But here we are on the ground looking at Christ. And he is wanting us to see his beauty. He is longing to be wanted by you. So that you will pursue him with everything that is in your being. Our core value here, and that's what we've been going over the last few weeks. Our core value at this church, we believe this. To, to our DNA, and that is normal devotion. Or, or I should say this, devotion is normal for every believer. And we should not be satisfied without seeing Christ and His beauty at full tilt in our lives. In fact, it's normal and it's right to pursue the climb. And let me say the opposite, it's It's abnormal. It's freakish. 
It's weird to say that you're a Christian and not have a passion to know His beauty. And we think it's weird when we find a Christian on fire. And really that should be the exact opposite. That should be normal for us to be fully devoted to Christ. In fact, Jesus says it's an all or nothing proposition. He says you can't have your cake and eat it too. You either choose the world or you choose me. In fact, he said this in Matthew, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his what? His soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, the climb is, is normal. The climb is, is natural. It's the thing that we should be engaged in. The carrying of the cross is, is normal. The pursuit is normal. Your true love is in the tower, and it's normal to turn your back on the world and be focused on your true love. In fact, Jesus tells us two parables in, in Matthew as well. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. We don't know if he found jewels. We don't know if he found gold. He just found a treasure. And then his heart was captivated. And he was going to do anything possible to own that field. And so he sold everything he had to go purchase the field. And then Jesus doesn't make, miss a beat. And he says, ah, there was a man who was a pearl merchant, and he found the beautiful, the most beautiful pearl in the world. It was precious, and he went and sold everything he owned in order to buy the pearl. When the prince discovers Rapunzel, he's going to do anything to be with her. And when we discover Christ, I mean really discover Christ, it is normal that you will do everything to seek out that treasure. Paul is writing in our text today. We're going to be in Philippians 3, but it's a very personal text. It's very personal. In fact, he's going to mention I, me, my 16 times in nine little verses. And we kind of get a glimpse into his heart when we find out when he meets Jesus for the first time. Do you remember when we first find Paul? His name is Saul, and he's on the road to Damascus. He's on a hot trail to persecute some Christians. And on his way there, suddenly he meets Jesus, and he doesn't know what's going on. There's a bright light, and his world is turned upside down. Everything that he thought was right on, on Monday, on Tuesday, it's the opposite. And suddenly he found out all the things that he was doing, all the religious activity, all the wandering around in this world trying to stuff things in his heart. He finally met the real beauty. He met Christ on the road. And then he just let go of everything that he used to hang on to. All of his trophies, all of his accomplishments, all of his religiousity, all of his church attendance. He just said it's all garbage. You know the hardest person to reach for Christ is? It's a person who's self-righteous and is just full of religious activity. They've never been to the tower. 
They've been on the ground. They see the beauty in the tower and they're like, oh, that's nice. But I'm going to stay down here where it's comfortable. I don't want to risk climbing. I know what this is to me. And they really don't know the beauty of Christ. People who focus on accomplishments or religious activities, they're not focused on Jesus. They're not even looking at the tower window. You know, sometimes, you know, us ministers, we talk amongst ourselves, this guy here and this guy there and this guy in California, this guy in Texas, and you can find the guy that wants to build a big church and he's all about programming, he's all about doing everything so that he can have a church growth movement. And then you find the guys that don't care about that, but they, they pursue Christ. You can tell it. You can smell it on them. They eat and they breathe Jesus. And do you know what ends up happening? Their churches grow, and the guy that tries to do it on his own, he normally has a moral failing. Or he, his little bit of fruit that he gets crumbles in his very hands. We are to pursue the beauty the beautiful Christ. Real joy. Real joy is about knowing Jesus. Paul's found the treasure. He's found that great pearl because nothing matters but knowing Christ. I hope you have your Bibles with you. I hope you've turned it already to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick it up at verse 8. Paul has already said that all his future, uh, his past accomplishments are garbage. And then he's going to start telling us in verse 8, a however, or an indeed. He says in verse 8 this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus is my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul's going to tell us where real joy comes. And he's going to tell us that nothing matters but Jesus. In fact, go back to verse 8. He says this, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world. And the word know doesn't mean to intellectually know. We know Rapunzel's in the tower. That's not what drives the prince. The prince wants to get up to the tower. He wants to make 
her his wife. He is after his true love. To know Christ means to know him personally, experientially. To know by personal involvement. It's kind of interesting, the word know in Hebrew is the word yada. And for you Seinfeld fans, you've seen or remember the episode, yada, yada, yada. Well, what they're saying is no, no, no. You know, you know, you know. But the word no in Hebrew really is about sex. So you're saying sex, sex, sex. You just didn't know that. Because Scripture says that Adam yada Eve. He knew Eve. That's how personal this word is. That when Paul says, I want to know Christ, it is about this intimate union, this understanding. It's a spiritual union. It's supernatural. I know this is kind of weird, and sometimes we get, we get weirded out by some weird things, and that's why we get weirded out, but I want you to flow with me on this. There is this union between you and Christ that's supernatural. And if you want to use the word mystical, you can. Paul says, Christ lives in me, in Galatians. And then he says, and I live in Jesus. That's a little weird in a good sort of way. It is about this incredible union. This union is deep. It's like a marriage. How many of you have been married for forever and you can complete your wife's or your spouse's senses? You know what they're thinking. You can tell when they walk in at the end of the day whether they've had a good day or a bad day just by looking at them. You know your spouse so well. That's that kind of no. Like a marriage, you, you start to complete each other's thoughts. It says that you've been given the mind of Christ, that he knows your thoughts, and, and you are to know his thoughts. It's not about familiarity. It is about that wonderment. Your lives are so intertwined. And Paul says something really weird in Ephesians, and he's talking about this relationship. And then he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Two will become one flesh. And we all say, okay, he's talking about husband and wives, you know, getting married and their lives intertwining emotionally. And No, he goes on in Ephesians and says this, This mystery is profound. That's why you can use the word mystical. This mystery is profound. He says, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. You have this incredible union with Jesus. And he is just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. I don't know if you've gotten to that point. Maybe you've never gotten off the ground. You see him in the window, and and now you're trying to climb to the window. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair that I might climb the golden stair. I want to know you, to press in. What do we know that makes this Jesus so beautiful? First of all, he's eternal. He is before time. He is independent of time. Time began in him, and time will end in him. He pays no attention to time, and he suffers no change. He is above it all. It does not wear him down, and it does not slow him down. 
And Jesus is unchangeable. He has never changed, and he never will change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow because he is perfect. And if Jesus was to change, then if he's already perfect, then he would be less perfect. Or if he needed to change, it meant that he wasn't perfect before, but he is perfect. He is beautiful. He is the most beautiful thing that you could ever think of or lay your eyes on. But the trouble is we are content to stay on the ground, and we don't press in. We don't climb the ladder. He's omniscient. He knows what happened yesterday. He knows what's happening today. He knows who's going to win the Super Bowl, as if that's really important. He knows when you're going to cry. He knows when you're going to draw your last breath. He is everywhere and knows everything. And he knows this is the most astounding thing. He's seen you naked. Spiritually naked. He's seen your sin. He knows the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow, and yet he still loves you. Doesn't that blow your mind? That the God, the creator of the universe, is so above us, so hard to even grasp, and yet he is omniscient, and he knows you, and he still says, I choose to love you. He knows in one free and effortless act. You know, computers, do you like them? I hate them sometimes. You ever yell at your computer because it's not doing what you told it to do? Do you realize that Jesus doesn't have to think to know? He just knows. He's outside of time. All matter, all spirit, all relationships, all events, all thoughts, all actions. He is sovereign above everything, He is beautiful. Love and mercy and grace and righteousness are His. He owns them. He is them. I know that's bad English. He is them. But how else? Our words fail when we try to describe the beauty. And I don't understand why we get so caught up in this world and we're on the ground and we see the tower and we don't press in. He's the most beautiful thing for now and forever. And He's so set apart. And yet, and yet we're made in his image. Do you know why it's so important that you're made in his image? Because you have the capacity to see his beauty. You have the capacity to understand the relationship. A dog can't see a sunrise. A cat could care less if, if the surf is 10 feet on Maui. I, I care, it's beautiful. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world. That we can relate to him, realize his beauty, see his beauty, taste his beauty, but most of all, enter into his beauty. You know, eternal life in Scripture is never described in terms of time. I don't know if that will blow your mind, but it's not. Eternity in this book, God's Word, does not describe eternity in lengths of time. John chapter 17, Jesus is in the upper room and he says this to his disciples. This is eternal life. That you know God. That you know me. That's eternal life. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair so that I might climb the golden stair. 
Nothing matters but knowing Christ. Nothing does. Nothing. You know, it's one thing to drink milk. It's another thing to milk a cow, right? It's one thing to eat corn. It's another thing to grow corn. It's one thing to listen to music. It's another thing to actually write music. You know, it's one thing to intellectually know Christ, and it's a completely different thing to experience His beauty. It's one thing to see Christ in the tower's window, and it's another thing to climb the golden stair. The second thing that we find in verse 9 is this, having Christ's righteousness is the greatest thing in the world. Knowing Him is the greatest thing in the world, yes, I'm going to say, also having His righteousness is the greatest thing in the world. I have nothing but filthy rags to offer. All of my trophies are the worst. I have nothing to bring to the table. And yet we just sang a song that was incredible. And it says that because of Jesus' righteousness, His beauty, His majesty, His awesomeness, that we can stand faultless before the throne. Wrap your noodle around that. Paul tells us too in verse 10 that having Christ's power is the greatest thing in the world. Christ's power is the thing that transforms me. Why would we be happy being a lowly worm when we can turn into a beautiful caterpillar? There's no power in the law. There's no power in rules. There's no power in my flesh to overcome my my. my dysfunction, my stinking thinking, my, my devices, my coping devices. There's nothing in me that is powerful enough except for Christ. So why does he talk about the power of the resurrection? Go back to the text and it says this in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Do you realize that it is the resurrection that is the most powerful event that has ever happened in all of time? Do we understand that he was dead? Jesus was dead, and yet he has power over the physical realm? Do you realize at the same time Satan and his minions and his demons and the powers and authorities were doing everything within their power to keep Jesus in that grave? And spiritually, he rebuked them and came out of the grave. That power, Paul says, is the same power that you have access to. The most beautiful thing in my world is when somebody comes to Christ, they climb the tower, and they become a new creature in Christ. The old ways are gone, the new has come, and your mouth drops because of the power of Christ. Because Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair that I might climb that golden stair, that I want to know the power of a transformed life. I'm tired of this world, I'm tired of divorce. I'm tired of sexual orientation. I'm tired of incest. I'm tired of abuse. I'm tired of alcohol and addictions and drug. I'm tired of the perversions that happen in our world. I am tired. And the only thing that gets me through the day is I want to climb the ladder. I have to see Christ. 
and I want to know his righteousness and be found faultless before the throne. I want to say, God, I am filthy. Come clean me. I need your blood. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. But my love and my pursuit of your, of your beauty. Paul tells us in verse 10, having Christ's power is the greatest thing in the world. There's no power in the law. There's no power in me to overcome my flesh, my critical spirit, my stinking thinking. There's nothing. There's no power for me to even serve. There's no power in me to even witness to Christ. And it is Christ's power that can transform me. And if I'm satisfied with being a worm and not being transformed into a butterfly, there's something wrong with me. I am satisfied with the world and not with his power. Why does he talk about the resurrection here? Do you realize that the resurrection had physical power and had spiritual power? Every demon, all of of hell and all of Satan was trying to keep Jesus Christ in the grave and he broke it. He overcame the physical realm. He overcame the spiritual realm. And there is no other greater power than the resurrection. And Paul says, not only in Colossians, not only Ephesians, but right here, that we can do far more abundantly than we could ever think or hope or imagine because of the power that comes through knowing Christ. And if we're satisfied with being on the ground and never pursuing the tower, we're going to have untransformed, cruddy lives where there's no power. We've drained ourselves of power. We've drained ourselves of transformation. We are just satisfied with the status quo of our neighbors who are Christless. Am I preaching now? But it's his beauty that calls to us. It's his beauty that yells out, having Christ with me is the greatest thing in the world. Go back to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then he says these incredible words, and may share in his sufferings. That word share is that word, that beautiful word that means koinonia. And if you really think about it, he says, I am there with you in your suffering. I know what it's like. And there is power there. It's not talking about the saving union with Christ, but a fellowship, a partnership, a deep communion of suffering. And the one of the things I gain in Christ is I have somebody to fellowship when I suffer. Somebody that knows what I'm going through. Somebody that's been there and done that. And then verse 11, and then I'm going to have to really wrap this thing up. Look at verse 11. It's a weird verse. It really is weird. 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word resurrection is used 42 times in the New Testament. And it's always the same word except for right here. This is the only time in all of the New Testament that it is used. It is the word resurrection, but there is a prefix connected to it. And the prefix is the word out, O-U-T, not an English version. And so we have to understand what he is saying. He is saying, he's not talking about the resurrection that we're going to have at the end of life. He's talking about the resurrection that we're having right now. Based on the tenses of the word, he basically is saying what we just sang about, you can rise above the spiritually dead in this world and rise to the tower. You can do it, and you're going to do it in any way, shape, and form that you can. You are going to press in. You are going to struggle. You are going to attain to that, to that resurrection, to that resurrection out of the spiritual dead world that we now live in. Uh, Vine says it this way. It's not referring to the physical resurrection. It's referring to your present life. You may rise above your school. You may rise above your stinky marriage. You may rise above the health issues that you have. You may rise above everything that tries to pull you down because there is power there. The same power that raised Christ can raise you right now out of any circumstance. And then this beautiful passage He says, I'm not there yet. Verse 12, I'm not there yet. It's a lifelong pursuit. And then he says, and I throw away the past. Don't let the past paralyze the present. You know, it's easy to live in yesterday because it demands nothing of you today. Do you realize that? So easy to live in the past. Your past close walk with Jesus Oh, I remember when I was in grade school, I was so close to Christ. Oh, I remember in college, I was so close to Christ. I remember five years ago, I was close to Christ. Forget it. Don't live in the past. Press on. It's easy to live in yesterday because it demands nothing of you today. We don't look back to see how far we've climbed. We just keep focused on pushing ahead. And then the future. He says, I run towards the finishing line. The words are just powerful in this text. He says that I strain every muscle that I have in the climb. I strain every muscle in the race. I don't let anything encumber me. I push on. I press in. I run after. You can't do the climb half-heartedly. You'll fall. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair that I might climb the golden stair. Full devotion to Christ is normal for every believer. We're going to close with Psalm 63. If you want to, you can turn there. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm that David sings out in the wilderness. O God, beginning at verse 1 of 63, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul, 
My soul thirsts for you. My very body, my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power, your glory. Let me add your beauty. Because your steadfast love is is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have one question for you. Will you climb the tower? Will you seek Jesus with all of your being? Do you see him? Are you becoming dissatisfied with the things that this world has to offer and you're willing to trade it all in to climb the stairs? Will you surrender everything that you might really taste Christ? My biggest fear as a minister is that most people in Christendom have only seen Christ from the window. They're saved, but they're beaten down. They're destroyed because they've never gone to the tower. It is normal for you to have full-on devotion for Christ. And let me tell you the corollary. If you don't have full devotion for Christ, there's something wrong. 